It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 105. And this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Mima Davis and Miranda DeShack farm at Urban Buds City Grown Flowers, an acre of flowers in a working class neighborhood in St. Louis, Missouri. Urban Buds is located on property that was an operating flower farm in the city for three generations, but had fallen into poor condition when Mima and Miranda purchased it in 2012. We talk about how Miranda and Mima rehabilitated the property and made the journey from startup to turning a profit while they financed the farm with paychecks from their day jobs. We discuss the challenges of running a farm while working an outside job, as well as adding a child to the mix this past year. Plus, Mima and Miranda talk about the challenges they've encountered on an urban farm and how they've overcome them. Miranda and Mima share their strategies for season extension, which they consider key to their business model in order to maximize profits from a limited land base. Urban Buds uses a variety of techniques inside and outside of a variety of structures. We also get into the nuts and bolts to achieving a long base life with their cut flowers. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service, bcsamerica.com. And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production, vermontcompost.com. And by Farm Commons. Strong, resilient, sustainable farm businesses are built on a strong legal foundation. Farm Commons provides practical legal resources to help farmers understand and respond to how the law affects them. Free guides and tutorials available online at farmcommons.org. Mima Davis and Miranda Dushak, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hey, Chris. Thank you so much for having us. We're so excited to be, uh, be on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. It's really great that you guys could join me today. So I'd like to start off because I was as I was as I was researching you guys. I mean, wow. I mean, what a great story from so many different angles. But can you guys kind of give us the lay of the land there at Urban Buds City Grown Flowers in St. Louis, Missouri, kind of where where you guys are located and kind of the history of the farm and and whatever else you feel like is going to help people to kind of understand where the rest of the conversation is coming from. We're in the heart of St. Louis. I mean, we are in a very urban neighborhood. We sit on 0.6 of an acre. In production total, we have about an acre, but our main um, old little compound farm is right in the city and in a very residential working class neighborhood. Um, If anybody's familiar with St. Louis, we're about Two blocks from Ted Drew's, which is a really famous custard shop in the city of St. Louis. We, on that property is, uh, we actually are, we have a glass greenhouse, which was part of the property. And the reason why we bought it, that dates back um, to the, the actual greenhouses, dates back to the 50s. And the property actually dates back to, what is it, 1870, Miranda? Yes, we are in the Dutchtown neighborhood of St. Louis, as Mima said, a highly residential working class neighborhood. We're seven miles south of the uh, Gateway Arch as the crow flies, um, easterly, closer to the, to the river than not. And the Urban Buds property uh, was always a farm. The farm itself dates from 1870. Um, so what we're doing, being farmer florists, is so old it looks new. Uh, this property was owned by farmer florists. They grew flowers in the greenhouse and in the field space. 
and had a design studio and sold to uh, florists and restaurants and did weddings and events. And uh, that property was held in the, the same family um, for three generations. And um, the neighborhood changed a lot and grew up around the farm property. And we purchased it five years ago. And it's been a, a labor of love to rehab the vandalized, condemned, and derelict uh, buildings, including that glass greenhouse, and get the the field space back into production. Wow, the place was actually condemned when you guys bought it. Yes, it was. Um, it was condemned. Basically, uh, Miranda got a phone call one day and said, "Hey, we've been trying to sell this greenhouse for years. It's right in the city of St. Louis." And she said, "Hey, Mima, let's go take a look at it." And we walked in and 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 felt it was love at first sight. It was condemned. Um, it had multiple problems, but over the five years we have rehabbed it. And I want you to really understand this is um, the city literally grew up around the property. Um, so the property, what, what's, we have bought the remainder of the farm. And this originally was a cut flower farm in 1870. Um, so we're just restoring it back to it, what it was originally. Um, its original intent. As we purchased the farm and realized we were going to be here, um, you know, most of our days and most of our nights, we we wanted to buy the house next door. So we were um, doing the rehab on the farm, and then we purchased the um, vandalized, uninhabited, uh, 900 square foot brick bungalow directly um, adjacent to the property to the south. So we rehabbed that as our house, and now the farm. A total with our with our houses, five contiguous city lots, or as Nina said, 0.6 of an acre. I'm actually looking at, at Google Earth right now and, and looking at your farm. And I mean, it really is. I mean, you guys are right in the middle of a residential neighborhood. I mean, there's I mean, you guys got houses chock-a-block right next to you. It's actually really wonderful, Chris, because, you know, like we said earlier, it's, it's you know, a working class neighborhood. We I'm living in a neighborhood where people don't get to see agriculture, you know, right in the heart of the city. You know, um, kids don't get exposure to what, you know, how a plant grows or what it, what's growing in the field um, or, you know, and, and, you know, everyone from our garbage man when I'm out working or the neighbors, they're like, oh, it looks so beautiful. I mean, we're actually able to share with them a, a bit of a little bit of what agriculture really is. I think that's so great. And it's interesting that you guys are doing that with flowers instead of food. I, a lot of times when we think of urban farming, the first thing that comes to mind is lettuce and tomatoes, not ranunculus. Right, right, right. And um, it really gives us a vantage point. Um, you know, we just had a baby this past year and um, and I normally do deliveries. And, you know, when you have a newborn, it's really hard to make the deliveries. And, you know, we and our florist basically said, hey, we'll come get the flowers because they're so close. I mean, uh, you know, my largest, my longest delivery is, you know, like 30 miles away. I mean, so everything is very compact. It's really uh, an advantage for the urban farmer for us to be right in the city because our florist could just pick up the product. They're more willing to come get it. And our farmer's market is two and a half miles away from our farm. 
So that's great. We can we can wake up later than uh, than we would if we were uh, out in the out in the counties to get to farmers market on time. That's not a small thing when it comes to quality of life. Not having to get up at the crack of dawn or before the crack of dawn. Yeah, yeah we're, you know? we're we're still waking up pretty early, but my gosh, it isn't like getting up at three in the morning. You know, so that that's quite the advantage too. So you guys do the you guys do the farmers markets, you do the you do wholesale and you also do weddings and events, right? Correct. Yes. Now Mima, you were a flower farmer for a number of years before you came and started Urban Buds with Miranda, right? That's correct. That's correct. I had Wild Thing Farms, which was two hours outside of St. Louis. Um in Ashland, Missouri, uh right outside of Columbia, Missouri. And, uh, yeah, I ran a five acre farm there, um, of, of discut flowers and I would drive them into St. Louis. What made you decide to make the switch? Um, well, I made the switch before, long before I started urban, but we started urban buds. I basically was running five acres of flowers there, but, you know, in business as a single person, but, you know, really running that business. And, um, I had five employees, four to five employees, basically, Chris, I just really, um, it wasn't sustainable. I was driving, you know, twice a week into St. Louis, three times a week into St. Louis, um, for the farmer's market and then my delivery route. And, you know, by the end, by the time I finished doing that, I did it for like five years. It could have been vacuum cleaners I was selling. Am I really, you know, really burnt out on doing it on that scale um, without a farming partner. So um, basically when Miranda and I met, she was like, she was like, I want to farm. And I was like, wow, I want to farm too. Um, and we found this little bit of land and uh, thought we pro- we still own the farm out in Ashland. Um and, we, you know, we still have that farm and, and we haven't decided what to do with that yet. But we're really enjoying our urban farm for sure. And Miranda, what were you doing before Urban Buds got started? My background is in vegetable production. I've done some poultry. I've worked at a goat farm making cheese at Prairie Fruits Farm in Champaign, Illinois. Um, I was involved with the Catholic Worker Movement and was living in intentional community uh, with folks who um, we would live with um, formerly homeless people and do service that way. And then during the day, I would go be a farmhand on farms. So I moved to St. Louis in 2010 after uh, leaving Dubuque, Iowa, where I was uh, the gardener at a convent there for three years. And my friend said, come on down to St. Louis. You're not happy anymore. Uh, it was kind of time for me to transition to a, a different Catholic worker, the Catholic worker here in St. Louis. So uh, I came down here and um, applied for a job at a Cooperative Extension, Lincoln University Cooperative Extension. I was lucky enough to get hired in, in 2010 during the Great Recession. And there I met Mima Davis. And uh, we both sort of instantly perked up when we saw each other, a, a really sweet friendship and then romance developed. And as Mima said, I, I wanted to farm. I knew my partner, whoever that was going to be, was going to be a farmer. And so um, we just said, let's go for it. Let's 
let's try farming together. And here we are. How did you guys find the piece of property that became Urban Buds? I got a call from um, the owner. Well, one of the owner's staff persons. I got, I got a call uh, in my capacity as an extension educator. Like Nina said, uh, this owner said, do you know of anyone who would be interested in starting an urban farm? In 2011, there was, I think, more energy around urban farming. And so it seemed like I would have contacts in that community. And I looked around um, the property with Mima, and we kind of set it out there to, to other people. Would anyone kind of be interested in this property? But uh, people were pretty scared of this property. Uh, there was the original farmhouse was standing there that was um, coming down. Uh, the owner owners were getting fines on the on the falling down house again. The greenhouse and and uh, floral studio were rehab. The field space, the large backyard or what we call field space, was just full of Bermuda grass. So um, people were reluctant to take on this property, but um, Mima and I decided let's let's give it a try. And because our relationship was so new, we didn't want to stress it by going out to Wild Thing and being in the rural community, being away from our friends in the city, having to drive into St. Louis. We just said, you know what, if we're going to give our farming partnership and our our romantic partnership a fair chance, we should try it on a, a smaller piece of property around our community and close to our market. So that kind of sealed the deal for us. So you get on this farm that's full of Bermuda grass, that's got a greenhouse that, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking that I'm imagining this greenhouse has a lot of broken panes of glass. I'm the, the farmhouse is falling down. What did you guys do? How did you, how did you turn this into a productive property? Well, you know, when I first saw the property, I didn't even see the falling down house. I saw the open space. <laughs> I saw, you know, a huge open space, beautiful glass greenhouse that really, Chris, it didn't have a lot of broken panes. I mean, it had a few. I don't forget. What was it, like 50 broken panes, Miranda? It wasn't, you know, yes. I saw it all as doable. Um, I didn't even see that falling down house that the city was finding people for. Um you know, that, that house wasn't a concern to me. I knew it had to come down. I didn't know how it was going to come down, but I actually was going for the glass greenhouse, the old, you know, Lord, Lord and Burnham glass greenhouses that they just don't build anymore. And I was like, we got to save this thing. And um, so we took it on and I immediately saw envisioned beds. Um, we grow basically on raised beds. We, um, yeah, we just went in when we first tilled um, the property and did a soil test. We had 8% organic matter in the city. That was crazy. Um, and uh, it was just really, really wonderful to um, see that just come into fruition. Over the years, we've been able to eradicate the Bermuda grass a little at a time. And... Um, you know, bindweed is a little bit of a problem now, but, you know, the farm has really just developed over the last five years to a thriving little cut flower farm. Mima Davis is a force of nature. She just looked at this property and said, let's do it. 
And we did. I'm a hard worker. She's a hard worker. We worked seven days a week uh, for four and a half years, uh, just trying to build this business and making it work and putting our money in. Uh, we didn't take out any loans. We just, we just kept putting in our paychecks into the property. So we just, uh, we said, we're going to do it and we were going to give it five years and then reassess and then another five years and reassess. So we're at our first five years and, um, we're moving forward for the next five years. The uh, farm is it's a labor of love for sure. Um, I guess in year three or year three was when we actually were four, when we actually turned a, a profit. You know, we the the business became actually self sufficient, um, which is amazing for a farm business to become self sufficient. Right. In year four, the business paid for itself. Right. But that's without us taking out labor. We do have one employee that we have to pay labor on, but the the property is supporting itself and um, paying for labor. And in this year, we hope to transition to bringing Nima home and the property then um, paying her. Uh, One thing I would say about an advantage of our property, because it was always a cut flower farm, there was a big open area that never had a house on it. So we could actually till in the, in the ground In urban farming, usually you have to truck in topsoil, but we, we didn't do that. We took a grillo in with the walk behind plow and, and plowed it ourselves, dug out the raised beds, uh, raked out all the Bermuda grass. And that's how we, you know, created the field space. Right. So you are already working to a large degree with, an agricultural site. Oh, right. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yes. Now, did you, and and I suppose because you're working with flowers, you don't have to be as concerned with some of the soil contamination issues that you might otherwise end up with in an urban environment. Yes, that Correct. is true. Yeah. That is, that is true. You know, because especially when I, when I look at something like a glass greenhouse and I think about the nursery industry or even a, a conventional cut flower uh, business, that can be a pretty heavy pesticide load. Have you guys had any challenges with that? Um, it, it, it was a pretty heavy duty pesticide load. Um, you know, we didn't have, to, you know, we're way over the, we're trying to bring it back into balance right now. We're using, um, so it was way over the top with uh, potassium and, some other things, and we're we're trying to bring it back now. We're using um, Kinsey, the Albrick method, and trying to you know do the soil balance, especially in the glass greenhouse right now, um, and bringing back you know bringing that soil back into balance. Um, the outdoor field space is really really good space. Um, like I said, at an eight percent organic matter when we first filled. Um, you know the greenhouse space. We are you know bringing it trying to improve that soil. And are you actually growing in the ground in the greenhouse? Yes, we, we grow in the ground in the greenhouse. We have the field space. We put up a low cost hoop house made out of PVC. And then we put up a, a high tunnel. So we have a 30 by 60 high tunnel with eight foot sidewalls and a ridge vent. So we have multiple growing zones. And in those areas, you know, there are issues with aphids, white flies, um, kind of just normal stuff, and and we treat that using uh, organic sprays. Are you guys certified organic? 
No, we are not. Is there something that keeps you from doing that? Or is that just a marketing decision that you guys just don't need it? Yeah, we just don't need it. Um, you know, our floors, everybody that we sell to knows that we are, you know, definitely use sustainable practices. And for our marketplace, we just, between the paperwork and, you know, all the hoops that we had to jump through, it just didn't work out. The numbers didn't, just didn't crunch out for us for that to be a real advantage for us and flowers. And when we survey our customers, whether they're our florist customers, our bridal customers, or our farmer's market customers, the first, the first reason that they say they purchase our product is because it's fresh. The second reason is because it lasts a long time. And when we ask them about, is it important to you that it's organic, that doesn't really come up with them. I mean, they like to know how we're farming. We have open houses so people can come and see. They know that we have kids, we have our, our baby around the flowers, we're around our flowers, our animals are around the flowers. So they know, but that, but being certified organic has not, uh, no one has ever asked us if we're certified or organic or really indicated that that would uh, affect their purchasing of our product. And so I guess I'd, I mean, I'd ask the question, why farm with just organic sprays? I mean, do you guys do anything that would keep you from being certified organic? Is there a motivation for following a certain set of practices? Well, you know, when you then accept the, you know, certified organic, it limits your seed sourcing. It limits, um, I just, we just found it limiting. I know that they, you know, there's certain seeds that you can only buy, then you have to do further searches to find that organic seed product. And, you know, when I see a product, I want to buy, you know, flower seed, bulb or form, you know, I want to buy it. I just want to take it. I want to grow it. And I, you know, I don't want to have to search around. There's some things you can't even get. Um, you can't even grow if you're certified organic in the flower world because you can't get that organic seed. Right. Or even, untre even untreated seed. So, you know, it's, it's a, it actually would be limiting for us in some ways. We grow about 70 varieties of cut flowers. So, um, and that's a lot. You know, in, in the course of our season, our season starts well, about February 1 and goes straight through Thanksgiving. Um, and we have a really long season growing 70 different varieties of cut flowers. So when I'm doing my shopping for seed ordering and you know, I, I want to be able to not be limited, have as, you know, as little limits on my shopping as possible. Especially given the industry that you're in, which which doesn't have an emphasis on organic seeds. Right. So it sounds like you guys aren't on the farm. Well, you know, it's always funny when you say you're not on the farm full time, but you guys have jobs that that keep you from being on the farm 24-7. Can you talk about a little bit about how you guys make that work? Yes, Chris. You know, it, it's really it's really difficult, but it, it you know, goes to our commitment to to farming. Um you know, my day usually starts early in the morning, about five o'clock. I might go over to the farm, do some things before I go to work. And then I come home from work and I go right back to the farm. You know, I might end my day about 11 p.m. Um, you know, that's just part of doing it. It's part of our long-term um, plan. We did not want to take out loans um, to start our farm. And um, we use our paychecks to uh, invest in the farm 
And in year four, the, the farm actually became self-sufficient. Um, so it was really important for us um, to keep our jobs, to be able to invest in the farm, because that is where we want to be. This year um, and next month, I will be coming home to the farm full time. And that was part of our strategic plan to have that happen. Um, but not to go into debt, the farm um, was really this just really important for us. I can't stress you enough, you know, the whole debt thing and then all that pressure to pay off that debt. We did not want, want to have that type of pressure. So by keeping our jobs a little bit longer um, and, and making the farm work, um, and we needed to see if it would work too. Um, although I had another farm, you know, years ago, um, we needed to see if this would work right here in the urban area. Um, and that's why I think, what do you think, Miranda? Yeah, I think that we've seen the rewards of sacrifice. When we started this project, uh, as Mima said, we were debt averse. And so we knew we were going to have to keep our jobs and farm until it came to a, a point when it seemed like the business would be uh, sustainable and then profitable. So we both have this um, innate understanding of right work, or uh, you could call it vocation. We wanted to do work that would be good for the world, good for us, good for the environment, and being using organic uh, farming practices to grow flowers in a semi-distressed neighborhood of St. Louis City seems to be a good use of our life's energy. So working full-time enabled us to build this business and I'm grateful that we had and still have the opportunity to get income that way as we uh, developed this, this business. So we work a lot. Um, our family members give us talking to about how much we work, but at, at the year four and a half mark, we started taking Sundays off and uh, that was, that was a big deal. So we're, we're getting there slowly, but surely. And when Mima comes home, um, we will have more time, I am sure. But we just kept our eyes on the prize and the long game. I think it's really important because it's not always possible for people to start off on a farm or, or even in any other business and quit their day job at the same time. You know, it, it does provide an important buffer and, and it provides, I think, well, it's a buffer and it's also a risk mitigator because, you know, what if you guys had started and everything hadn't worked out? You know, if the farming, if the flower market wasn't what you hoped it was. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and quite frankly, I don't know and, anybody who starts a business, a brand new business, and doesn't have another income, no matter farming, whatever it is, you know, Google, I mean, you know, hey, he had a, a side job when he started that. I mean, everybody has a job when you start a, biz, a new business, because you don't know what's going to happen with a new business, and you still have to eat, and you still have to support your family. And, you know, that's just uh, a stress reliever to have that extra income that real extra income. And for me, I would say that I had tried, uh, you know, I tried getting my farm, right? I knew when I was 19, I wanted to be a farmer. And I, and I, we bought this farm when I was 30. And I, I tried by joining intentional communities. 
right? Or, or working with group of, a group of friends. Okay, we're going to buy a farm together. And personalities would happen or life would happen or something would fall out or it didn't, it didn't work out. And in some ways, it was really freeing to say, with Urban Buds, we need cash, right? We don't need to try to make this grand community experiment work. Mima and I need to work and we need cash. And that was, that was freeing in a way uh, for me, instead of trying to get this, a, a community to work together to create this project. Usually those communities were underfunded and there was, you know, stressors that way. So in some ways, just having, having to worry about the money, this dream will happen if we have money and we have uh, dedication was freeing for me. So when, when Mima comes back to the farm, I'm looking at this overhead picture of your farm on Google Maps, and you're not going to make up her income by expanding. How are you guys going to, how is that going to change? Where, where are you going to pull that extra net from? Well, we actually, what you're looking at, Google Maps, that's our main farm. We have um, another lot that we, we're in the process of buying, and we have another, we have two other lots that we, uh, very large lots that we also work out of. Um, we'll be upping our wedding business for store. Um, that's already begun happening. Um, we have um, more weddings scheduled this year than we ever had. Um, I don't know the number, but um, they're rolling in. And that wedding business is, is really going to be um, a focal point um, because in Cut Flowers, you know, weddings is really the bread and butter, um, not the wholesale, not the farmer's market, but the wedding flowers are really the bed and butter of the farm. Last year, you guys introduced a new wrinkle into this whole farming and working off the farm and, and being a couple, you guys added another member of the family. (laughs) Yeah. Our precious little August. Absolutely. We did. We, uh, had a baby, a little baby boy. He'll be six months old next week. Um, and that has definitely added a challenge. I'm, I'm going to, you know, be straight up with you. Listen, when, you know, when you're up all night with the baby, it's, you move a lot slower on the farm for sure. Um, the next day. Um, but we wouldn't change a thing. I mean, it's, it's really added to our lives. It's really added, um, a new dimension. Um, so why we even want to farm, you know, why I want to be home on the farm because I want to be able to be there with him and, um, and watch him grow. I don't, have to, you know, right now when I, when I'm working on my full-time job, you know, I leave just as he's waking up and I come home just as he's falling asleep. And quite frankly, that's the same quality of life my dad gave me. He was gone you know, all day. And then it was when he came home, I was headed to bed. That's not the life I want to have with my son. I want us to have a full life where we're actually experiencing things together on a daily basis. And that's driving me home to the farm even harder and faster. And in my position, I work from home. So I, I'm with August quite a bit and I'm, I'm available to the farm somewhat much less now that I have a a six month old son, but, um, I can be with him and and we do have a babysitter come in to help and things like that. But, um, 
Yeah, it started to be to the point of why are we working so hard? Why are we working just so hard all the time? What, what's what's kind of the end goal here? And of course, the initially that end goal was so we can be together farming. And then it felt like, man, it, we. I knew I wanted to have a child and Mima wanted to have a child. And so it just seems like we're kind of doing it for, for him as well. You know, maybe this will be something he wants to do. Who knows? But it just felt like it was time to, um, time to, to make this project even more meaningful by, uh, having, having a son and neither of us were getting any younger. So we just kind of took the leap and, and went for it. And he's been the joy of our lives. I couldn't agree more. I mean, he's been completely the joy of our life. I mean, it's just, you know, he uh, really, I feel like he adds to our farming, our desire to farm and, you know, just to give him that exposure and that um, type of experience and to be with him um, is just really, really important to me. So you guys do a lot of work with, with providing flowers for weddings. And one of the things I found really that, that struck me on your website was, was a statement that you guys have that in, in June of 2014, that you guys were actually one of the first four same-sex couples who successfully challenged Missouri's gay marriage ban. And I have a couple of questions about that. I mean, one, how in the world working full-time, having a farm on this, did you guys find time to kind of to engage in in that kind of activism? I, I want to ask that question. Then I, I also want to put this one out there: is like, what kind of an effect has that had on your business? Because it's not an easy thing to do to know where to draw that line between you know the political activist side of things and the 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 need to to make money and to to have people that represent diverse political views and diverse religious views who are still wanting to engage with your business. The way that worked was pretty interesting. The mayor Francis Slay. So the city has been really supportive of us and our projects. We're we're close with our 25th ward alderman Shane Cohn in St. Louis. We have we have alder persons, alders like city council people. And he was really supportive of us buying this property and rehabbing it. And he became a personal friend. And he knew that the mayor and the recorder of deeds were going to commit this act of civil disobedience by issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples. And they were looking at at same-sex couples who would be good candidates, who would accept the publicity who um, were in committed relationships. So our alderman uh, approached us and he said, hey, this thing is going to happen. It's going to happen really soon. You can't tell anyone. We need a decision in eight hours. So Mima and I just sat down and looked at our lives and thought what was important for us. And at this point, we had already had our spiritual ceremony. So we, we were married uh, in, um, on September 2nd, 2012. So we knew we were going to stay together and I knew, and Mima knew that we wanted to have a child, but we wanted Mima to be protected, to have rights with that child. So we talked it over and we contacted our attorney and we contacted the attorneys that the, 
the city provided us names and numbers for, and we thought about our plan, everything from if we are threatened, here's the number for the FBI and call them, or this is how you handle the media, this is how you handle your family. And we just said, this is too important not to do. Yeah, Chris, we, you know, we didn't have to do a lot because the city provided us a lot of support. The city provided us all the attorneys. The city provided us everything we needed. We just needed to walk through the door, which, which is not a small decision. That's a huge decision. But, um, you know, we had a huge team of support, you know, like, you know, people talking to us about, hey, listen, you might want to take down your Facebook page for a while. You might want to do this, you know, and then what happens if people camp on your front door? I mean, there were all kinds of meetings like that, but none of that happened. We, the complete opposite, but, you know, we had a lot of support, just amazing outpouring of support from our customers, from our farmer's market customers, from our floral um, people, uh, from our florists. Um, We just had all kinds of outpouring of support. And now, you know, now that we did that, here we are years later with a new administration, um... And, you know, we're pretty, we're out. We have tons of friends, other people in the floral industry, other flower farmers who are like losing Facebook people because of what they're posting about the Women's March or they're losing, you know, Instagram followers. Well, you know, we only, we've only lost six, you know, because of our postings regarding the Women's March and the, you know, the new administration. We've only lost six because we were already out there. It provided us the opportunity to be really authentic in our business. And the political is personal. And we just happen to be farmers, too. Um, um, so if we we figure out ways of blending it in. Um, our wedding business, you know, um, we're in it, we have a, a particular type of wedding client that we look for, one. We don't, you know, our wedding people don't choose us. We choose them. Um, we're very, very particular about the weddings that we take on. Um, and most of the people who are coming to us about weddings know our work already because they see us at farmer's markets, they bought bouquets for us, or they just kind of know what we do. Um, so we're, you know, we don't just take anybody who walks through the door as a wedding client. Um, we're very discriminate. We actually discriminate and well, not discriminate, but we really are, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, discerning conscious discerning discerning and conscious on who we take on as a wedding client so what do you look for in a wedding client uh one i look for someone who you know has actually done their research and understand that we are you know have studied our web page or buy we've already bought flowers from us at farmer's market or through a florist and they understand that we're a seasonal a local, uber local, seasonal flower farm. So if you want peonies in July, we're not the farm for you. We're not the wedding people for you. If you want roses ever, we're not the wedding people for you. We look for people who want, um, people who are conscious about sustainability, who are looking for local, sustainable, um, non-toxic flowers, and who look to support the local economy. 
um, that's a really growing population. People are really become coming conscious of um, not only where their food comes from, but where their flowers come from also. So, you know, that's kind of a little niche market. We also work with um, people and their color palette. You know, if you come to me and say, well, I want hydrangeas and this and that, we'll give you a beautiful wedding experience. Um, but we're going to work within your color palette opposed to, you know, specific flowers. Does that make sense? I think in a lot of ways, businesses all over the place have to have to do a good job of choosing their customers. And I know this is something we talk about a lot in, in the CSA movement is, you know, you've got to choose people who are going to fit with your business. It doesn't do any good right. to, to, to provide boxes of vegetables to people who don't cook at home. Exactly. I mean, yeah, we really do look for people who kind of fit with our ethic uh, of the farm, you know, um, and, you know, whenever we go outside of that, it, it, it just doesn't work well. Um, and, you know, we stress out, they stress out. And why do that? I mean, it just makes real sense for um, social conscious people is usually who find us. You know, people who are really conscious we, on their food choices. Right. We also, in, in addition to, uh, yeah, in addition to, um, own, we don't ship in flowers, like Mima said. You know, we won't offer peonies in July. We also uh, avoid as much as possible using flower foam. So it kind of, uh, we, we try to educate our customers about the, the toxicity of flower foam, how it's bad for the earth and it's bad for designers. So uh, we need to make sure that the people we're working with are o okay with more of a vase arrangement as opposed to like a low roundy moundy flower stuck in, in floral foam. So we have to weed, we, we kind of weed out or the conversation process is maybe a little too long with our potential couples we work with. But uh, as Mima said, in the end, it's really worth it to to figure out who's going to be a good fit with us. Have you guys found a niche with same sex couples because of because of your orientation and because of being out in that community? I don't think so. I, I mean, <laughs> As crazy as it sounds, um, uh, we haven't really marketed it. Do things we haven't really done that. Um, uh, I think we've done maybe two gay weddings. Um, we haven't really marketed it, Chris. It's just you know we we just kind of open. It's it's not a marketing strategy of ours. We're you know that's the political is personal. But that is personal, and we just kind of don't take it over in the farming world. I don't know why we haven't marketed it, but we don't. We don't. I, the reason is, Nima, because we're both so busy all the time. I think, you know, once, we, <laughs> once Mima comes home and can dedicate her time to the farm, I, I think we could try to reach out to those communities more. And, you know, people find us uh, for sure. We have a, a pretty okay Instagram following and, and we have a pretty okay Facebook following and we find people who are, you know, maybe living on the coast and do internet searches about Florence and St. Louis and, and they kind of find us. They're going to be married in St. Louis. And then we also have folks who are, who are at farmer's market. But, you know, I, I thought we would sort of um, initial like just sort of organically have more of the same sex couples kind of find us. But, you know, I think it all kind of takes advertising and um, 
Chris, that is one thing we have not done is, is advertise. And it doesn't sound like it's been a need for you to, to date. We need to focus on it. We, we do need to focus on it. It hasn't really been a need, but we do need to focus on it. Um, and once I'm home on the farm full time, that, that will be one of uh, my goals is how to promote the business more. Um, yeah, people seem to find us and, and we are doing okay, definitely. Um, but, but we could always, you know, up that game. When you look at the difference between how much you make selling flowers wholesale to florists and how much we would make doing weddings, you know, doing the value added, it's pretty substantial difference, right? In the quantity of flowers that you use, um, in, in the amount people are willing to pay for, for design. So that is something we need, we need to focus on and we need to start advertising. And, um, that's our, our, goal as we move forward we will be doing a bridal show uh the end of february here in st louis that'll be our first bridal show so we have to get that out there more um as we look to the farm to to pay nema an income not just reinvest back into the farm now it's time to to pull to extract money out Great. I think that's a nice spot for us to stop, take a break, get a word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Mima Davis and Miranda Dushek from Urban Buds City Grown Flowers in St. Louis, Missouri. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible through the perennial support of BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need with PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, flail mower, power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, and you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, <laughs> seems like a long time ago, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor, and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheel farm tractors, and it has many of the same features. I've used other tillers and mowers, and I've spent most of the time when I was using them thinking about how much easier it would be with a BCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. And by Farm Commons. I had a great attorney while I was farming, but in a town surrounded by a sea of corn and soybeans, he often didn't understand the ins and outs of what we were up to on a legal front, whether it was dealing with intern housing, in-kind wages, land leases for my market farm, or putting my CSA on a strong legal footing. Farm Commons gets it. And what's more, Farm Commons turns that understanding into practical, accessible, and easy to understand resources that put the law into plain language without oversimplifying things. And did I say they were free? Because even my great attorney didn't do that. With an ever-growing selection of free guides, model documents, and video tutorials, Farm Commons understands that a strong, resilient farm business is built on a solid legal foundation. Visit the Farm Commons website or watch for their interactive workshops held around the country farmcommons.org. And we're back with Mima Davis and Miranda Dushak from Urban Buds in St. Louis, Missouri. So just from looking at your website, following your Instagram feed, it's clear that you guys are doing a whole lot of work with season extension. Can you tell me about what that looks like on your small scale flower farm? Yeah, Chris, you know, that's the most exciting part of our business for me. Um, so when you really think about the floral industry in general, you start to think about, well, when are the floral holidays? You know when they are, Chris? What's the first floral holiday you could think of? Well, the first floral holiday I can think of is Valentine's Day because that's coming up. Right. And that is when? February. February. Right. 
And I know what February looks like here in Wisconsin. Right. In, in, in most of the country, you know what it looks like, too. So, you know, in, in Missouri, for me, it is vitally important as a flower farmer for me, okay, to, to be in that marketplace. So February is that, if you just go down that list, Chris, you know, February is Valentine's. Then you have, you, you start running the uh, St. Patty's Day, Mother's Day, um, Father's Day, graduations, proms, and then June is the wedding, May, June are wedding months, right? Right. Did you agree with that? Yeah. Right. So, so when you, and then, you know, you have the flower farmer who then, if you're not in season extension, your first product is coming out of the field in what? End of June, beginning of July, you know, if you're just field growing. So you have missed half of the marketplace. You know, if you're, if you're, especially if you're doing wholesaling, like we are, you know, um, our floors and our farmer's market customers, first day of market or first time we do a delivery, man, they just are craving the locally grown fresh cut flowers. So it's really important for us to be in that marketplace, um, you know, the start of the flower season, which for us is Valentine's Day. And then, you know, around, around, um, June and July, people take vacations. So our floors literally, you know, our floral sales drop, our market um, revenue drop, our farmer's market revenue drop because people leave. And um, then it picks up again in September, October, when school starts back up, you know, and, and then there's fall weddings. And then you go right into Thanksgiving and then into Christmas. So it's really important for us to be in the marketplace during those holiday times. So what does season extension look like at Urban Buds? How are you guys accomplishing that? Because I I mean, I know what we do with vegetables, and I know that vegetables are plants and flowers are plants. But but tell me, tell me how you guys are actually going about that. Yeah, so we really, you know, a lot of our production um, for season extension um, uh, this year especially is going to start in June, um, we so we start sowing our um, fall crops that we're going to put out into the greenhouse in Ju- in June and July. We, we sow those seeds or order those bulbs or order those corms, depending on what we're doing. Um, and 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 we get it going. It starts it starts for us really in June. They have you know flowers blooming um, in February, March. In early April, it really starts early. Um, our our corms are planted a little bit later. Uh, we successfully sow a bunch of our corms. We grow freesia, ranunculus, um, anemones, um, stock, and these are all types of flowers over the winter. Um, I I really strongly believe in growing. It's my favorite thing to do. Growing on the other, I call it growing on the other side of the calendar. You know, you have less. Bu- less insect pressure on the flowers. Um, you have less, you know, the heat is, is obviously not around and there's nothing like being in a, in a greenhouse when it's, you know, 30 degrees out, it's 70 in the greenhouse. Right. Um, so it's just a wonderful place to be in the middle of winter. I, I, wintertime growing is, is my absolute favorite time of year to grow flowers. Now, when you talk about wintertime growing in the greenhouse, are you actually harvesting flowers in the wintertime? Or is this really growing the plants so that 
as the spring heats up and the days get longer, you're starting to get flowers at that point. Right. So in February, well, this year, um, we got a grant that we will be implementing for next year. We haven't started it yet. But the, right now, we're growing flowers in the fall to grow early, to cut on for early spring, right? So right now, um, for Valentine's Day, I could see our anemones are starting to bud up. We have ranunculus that we're already, a few ranunculus that we're already starting to cut on. Um, but we actually want to be growing, cutting flowers, December through March, that time period. Are you following what I'm saying? Yep. So cutting in the winter is our, with, with minimally heated greenhouse. So we um, collaborated with two other farms um, in the uh, in the state of Missouri, two other farmers, and we went in on a three-person grant um, and different, we're all in different parts of the state of Missouri, and we're doing a minimally heated um, experiment with actually growing flowers in the winter. That means cutting flowers, you know, after Thanksgiving and, you know, through the beginning of the new year um, in that time frame, which we've never been able to accomplish before. You know, the earliest we've been able to cut are our anemones, which are in our ranunculus, which are starting to bloom now. But we really want to be able to cut December through February 1. That's a real um, time period that we want to cut. If I could, if I could cut then, really, it would be better for my marketplace. In the summer, I could, I could take off. You know, when it's the hottest period of the, of the season, I would love to have. These, you know, the winter months be our, our high dollar months, and then we could take off like August, you know, go on a little vacation in August and not worry about the bugs, the, you know, other flower competitors, other, you know, you just don't have any of those worries, any of those concerns growing in the winter. And I think one of the interesting things about a lot of the flowers is that they're plants that you harvest over a period of time. It's not... It's not like a head of lettuce that you put in and, and take the whole thing out, right? You're actually cutting individual stems. So taking a break from the flower production doesn't necessarily mean having to start all over again. Right, right. So tell me about what you guys are doing at a practical level with the season extension from, you know, on nuts and bolts. How are you guys actually accomplishing that? We have various technologies that we've put in place uh, at the farm. Just to kind of give you a run through, we have a heated germination chamber, which has really helped with germinating seeds in the winter. It was so cold that we were uh, having having lower germination. So we have a, a heated germination chamber that has a, a water pan with a heating element in it. And then it, it heats up in that insulated box uh, stays around 70 degrees Fahrenheit and that helps just get those seedlings up from the germination chamber. The, the flats are taken out to banks of light that um, have heat mats under the, the lights. If the seeds need to, more heat to keep them, the seedlings need more heat for them to continue growing. They're, they're on heat mats under low fluorescent lights. From there, we can take them uh, out to the uh, propagation glass greenhouse. So we have the, the larger glass greenhouse, Lord and Burnham glass greenhouse, where we grow in the ground. But we have one adjoining to it. That's our propagation house. 
So after they, they grow some and they're doing well, they come out of those banks of lights just onto tables in the glass greenhouse. Uh, and then they're moved to be planted out either in the, in the larger glass greenhouse or the high tunnel or the hoop house or the field, depending on the type of year. But we heat the glass greenhouse and we heat those spaces to 45 degrees. We're in the city, we're on natural gas. We have Modine heaters and, uh, and a furnace that heats our propagation glass greenhouse and the, the larger glass greenhouse. But it still gets, it still gets cold, right? So we also put on a remade blankets, a heavier gauge remade blanket that we put on at night and take off during the day. We do that also in the high tunnel. Our high tunnel has uh, uh, has double poly with blowers blowing air in between the two layers of of plastic on the on the roof of the greenhouse, on the top, on the arc of the greenhouse. And then uh, we have the plants growing, but we also put hoops and remay that we take on and off each day. And um, some, like the poppies, they even have another layer of plastic, then a layer of remay. So depending on the temperature, if it gets over, you know, 30 degrees in the high tunnel, we'll take off, we'll take off the remay and then put it back on at night. But those are ways in which we keep the plants going uh, as long as possible. Okay, so just having been on your Instagram feed for some time now, you have some pictures of the remake inside of your high tunnel houses. And it looks like you're doing something really interesting with the hoops where you've got you've got a double hoop there and the and the remake sandwiched between it. Yeah, it, it's like a it's it, it, it makes like a curtain then or like so when you lift up the remake, it, it just can stay up. It's. It, it helps really control the remake, so the remake's not blowing all over the greenhouse, or um, you just have much more control. It's like a curtain that has um, a guide. The the bows serve as kind of a guide for the uh, remake. That's brilliant. So it's just kind of trapped in there, and and I imagine that also just makes it easier to put it on and take it off again if you're doing that multiple times a day. Yeah, it's like a curtain. Yeah, so it's not a big deal. Exactly. It's like, you know, closing a shutter or something. Yes. Because it's kind of on a track. You know, we make it like a little track for it. I love that. That's really slick. I, I, I'd never seen that before, so I, so I really like that. Um, how cold does it get in St. Louis in the wintertime? Well, St. Louis, we're in zone 6B, 7A. 7A, 6B, but um, it's uh, it can get down to zero here. Rarely it will get to into the negatives, but sometimes, most of the time, uh, we're around the, the 30s, you know, above freezing at night, um, kind of in the 40s during the day. That's what this winter has been like, although there have been some cold snaps where we've been in the, in the 10s during the day. So... Um, but generally, St. Louis is pretty hot in the summer, but it still gets cold in the winter, too. Now, when we're talking about season extension, what do you do about the heat in the summertime? On a high tunnel, we have um, eight-foot sidewalls, and we also have a ridge vent on our high tunnel. Um, so, you know, that really can move air air in and out of there pretty quickly. And... Um, you know, hopefully as we've got some wind flow cooling down some of that air on the crops. In the glass greenhouse, you know, that is a, we really plant heat tolerant 
Because it could it could get to you know one twenty one forty in that glass greenhouse. We use a shade cloth, um, fans, and we plant heat tolerant greens. Tend to work really well. Um, you know, greens like this year I plan on. Um, Sinna geranium is in there. Rosemary will be in there this year. Um, you know, uh, greens that can really take a lot of heat go in the glass. We've also been uh, experimenting with planting in white plastic so that the cool season crops will stay cooler longer instead of being planted in black plastic. Most of the field crops are planted into black landscape fabric, but for the high tunnel, uh, and the greenhouse, we're trying white plastic to have that to try to keep everything cooler. We'll see how it goes. And with that, the 70 different types of flowers that you're growing, how many of those are perennials versus annuals? Um, because we're on 0.6 of an acre, um, we don't grow a lot of perennial because they take so long. Um, to come on, and then they're usually like one cut, and you're done. You know, peony season has its has what a two week period, and then it sits there for the rest of the year. We can't afford to use that kind of land space um, to commit to that. So um, we're doing mostly annuals. Out of we do a few perennials, but they're really on the borders of the property and not really that much. And you mentioned that you're using a lot of landscape fabric for season extension. That obviously has some weed control effects as well. I'm thinking that you guys probably aren't doing a lot with cover crops. We use cover crops. Uh, we do use cover crops, actually. We we do use landscape fabric for weed protection, for sure. I mean, remember, we have, we have full-time jobs, and we want to do other things on the farm other than weed. So we do use quite a bit of landscape fabric. Um, but the cover crops will... So, you know, we do a lot of annuals, so I'm always trying to keep the beds full, right? But I do take beds out in between crops. I do use buckwheat. Um, we did, um, the, over the winter, we used tiller radishes. Um, I want to use some mustards with some tiller, tiller radishes as well. Um, but buckwheat and tiller radishes and mustards are about it, Chris, because I really worry and we don't have a lot of big equipment here. You couldn't even get big equipment onto our farm. So, um, you know, I really don't want to create a problem of, of having a cover crop that I can't get rid of. So one of the things that you guys feature on your website is a, is a claim that you've got the highest quality flowers in the St. Louis area. How are you guys accomplishing I mean, obviously, freshness is an important part of that. But what else are you doing to ensure that you have the highest quality flowers available? The process of keeping our flowers fresh is really important. We uh, guarantee pretty much on most every flower, except for some varieties, a seven-day vase life. And with other flowers, it, it lasts even longer. And the way we do that is by harvesting at them at the correct stage. You know, a sunflower should not be blown open. A uh, ranunculus or a peony should should still be in bud, but, but feel soft and squishy like a, a marshmallow. So we really know the crop and know when to cut it, how many florets are open, things like that. We make sure we have sharp, clean tools. We have water that is put into clean buckets. We spend a lot of time washing buckets or 
in a lot of time, but it's really important that our buckets get washed and are clean. Um, and then we, we use floral preservative, uh, depending on what type of flower needs which sort of floral preservative, we, we use that. And then we have uh, the we have the um, the cooler where we don't keep anything except flowers in our cooler. So we, we don't have a lot of ethylene damage. And um, then we just move our, our flowers on quickly out the, out the door, whether to the florist or the farmer's market customers. Most of the flowers at farmer's market are cut um, the day before or maybe two days before they hit the market. And at the market, we educate our customers about how to take care of their flowers. You know, recutting the stems. We leave, they leave with their their flowers wrapped in in a moist paper towel in a baggie, and they're given a packet of floral food and are encouraged to use it. So we kind of just keep that whole that whole harvest change chain at starting with clean tools, clean buckets, clean water. Harvesting at the correct time is very key, and then keeping them in the cooler and moving them out the door is uh, the way we do that. I, I always ask flower farmers this question, and I, I still haven't gotten a great answer for it, but we'll see if maybe you guys have a great solution for washing buckets. Because I know on my farm, that was one of the jobs that, you know, washing the harvest totes, washing the harvest buckets was something that always took longer than I wish it did. And and never felt like I got as good a results as I wanted to get. But for you guys, that's a really critical step. Yeah, it is a very critical step. Um, everyone on the farm washes buckets. There's not a bucket washer because that would just be a horrible job. But everyone on the farm washes buckets. Um, and they've got to be clean. I'd say the buckets should be as clean as your drinking glass. So I should be able to walk in and pick up a bucket and drink out of it. Um, I've never done that, but, you know, I should be able to. That's the idea. What's your method for getting your buckets clean? Are you guys just using a, a scrub brush and a and a sink full of water? Or? Yeah. Okay. Just yep. Soapy water and everything. But, but my dream, Chris, my dream is the bucket washer. There's a cut flower farmer, Janet Foss, out in Chehalis, Washington. We visited her farm this past spring, and she had a, a mechanized bucket washer, you know, with the big brush that rotates and has soap and water uh, squirting out of the end of a hose while the while the big brush is turning. So um, Nima put that on, on my birthday list. That would be, oof, that'd be great. Now, Miranda, before, before we turn to our lightning round, I... I did want to ask you, I, I know you're a fourth generation beekeeper. One of the things that I was curious about, you guys, you guys talk about how the honey comes from the farm. And I actually saw a quote from uh, food critic Jane Stern of the Splendid Table that said this is the best honey that she's ever tasted. So I'm curious because on a flower farm, most of what you harvest is cut before the buds open. Where are your bees getting their honey? In a perfect world, they would be cut before the nuts are open. No, I mean, some flowers do, of course, open and um, the, the bees are on the flowers. And beekeepers tend to have uh, heavier harvests. Urban beekeepers have heavier harvests than uh, rural beekeepers because of the different type of blooming flora around in the city. But our, our bees are uh, on our flowers. They're on our cover crop, we let the buckwheat um, um, flower so the bees can uh, collect nectar and pollen from them. 
and then they're just getting it from from the trees. I don't know, but it's a delicious, unique floral blend that we're quite proud of. So, and and that that quote from Jane Stern really really made my heart sing. That was quite quite the honor. That is pretty darn cool. So, Mima, it's my understanding that you're very involved with the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers. Um, yes, I'm the regional director for the Midwest region here. Um, boy, I've been part of that association for many, many years now. Um, and it's just a network of cut flower farmers who, you know, have a national conference every other year and have regional meetings every every year. And they get together and just share ideas and talk about how to develop their cut flower farms. And yeah, if people want more information, it's the Association of Specially Cut Flower Growers. And it's a wonderful, wonderful, it's the best organization I've ever been a part of in terms of actually farmers sharing information. It's just really great. Well, and I know that anytime I talk to a cut flower grower, they they insist on talking about the American Specialty Cut Flower Growers Association just because it is such a great organization and has been around for a long time and I think it's been very important in the industry. So thanks for bringing that up and thanks for being involved with that. Yeah, thank you. All right, with that, we're going to turn to our lightning round here at the end of the show. But first, we're going to get a quick word from a sponsor, and then we'll be right back. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, helping plants make sugar from sunshine since 1992. In the wild, where our crop plants' ancestors evolved their microbial partnerships, plants are provided with nutrients from the soil through the work of partner microbes in their employ. Wide-ranging roots reach an abundant supply of nutrients and microbes, even in less than ideal conditions. And now that you've gone and stuck that seed in a little tiny container, it has to get everything it needs right there in a few cubic centimeters of soil. By providing compost-based potting soils built on ingredients, selected to create an environment that supports the growth of plants chock full of microbial partners and humus bound nutrients vermont compost ensures that your plants have what they need consistently and over time makers of living media for organic growers since 1992 vermontcompost.com and we're back with the lightning round so I'm going to, you know, now we got both of you on the show here, so I'm going to, I'm going to take some turns here, but Mima, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Broad fork. Really? Is that something that you guys are, are using all over the farm every year? Yes, we use it, you know, frequently. I was going to say broad fork too. Babe, we're so connected. I like that. <laughs> That's so cute. Um, I hope you guys have different answers though, for what's your favorite crop to grow. Mine's would be ranunculus. I have several favorites. Chris, I always tell people my favorite crop is the one that I'm making the most money on at the time that they ask. <laughs> but <laughs> but, um, but I'd, I'd really have to say, you know, somewhere between uh, ranunculus and freesia. What is it about the ranunculus? And, and maybe for those of us that aren't in the cut flower business, you could give us a, an idea of what a ranunculus is and how yeah, it grows. But, uh, you know, the uh, ranunculus is just an amazing, beautiful flower. It doesn't, it's not, doesn't have a scent. It doesn't have a fragrance. Um, they, it's called the poor man's rose in that it opens up and actually it's multi-layered, so it looks like a rose, but only it's round. Um, comes in multiple, multitude of colors. Um, it grows about 18 inches tall, and it's just, it's one of the first flowers that bloom in the spring and when i say spring my spring is kind of warped but for me spring is like february march um 
it's kind of one of the first flowers that really bloom, and I know the season is getting started. The last flower that blooms in the season for us is Salvia lucantha, which is a tall, um, kind of it is purple, bushy flower, and it always makes me depressed because I think the season has ended. So ranunculus is really special because I know that we're about to, you know, the flowers are going to be coming on full force any minute, and that just makes my heart sing. How about you, Miranda? I love Lysianthus. It's long-lasting. It, it hits right in the hot, hot heat of summer when you're just tired and <laughs> sweating and scratching mosquito bites. Then Lysianthus comes. It's it's beautiful. It's long-lasting, and it, it always cheers me when um, when we hit July, which is I think our hardest time on the farm. What's the weirdest thing that's happened on your farm? So the weirdest thing that happened on the farm was that we had a car chase um, run onto some of our beds. Like, like they, you know, police were chasing. You were in the inner city, right? So the police were chasing a car and they drove through some of our farm beds. Wow! In the alley, <laughs> yeah, that was pretty crazy. In the alley, yeah, that was yeah. Scary I mean, you know, too. we went. We yeah because one of us could have been out there working, he would have gotten hit. But um, that was the weirdest thing I've ever seen happen on our farm is that they drove through our beds. That only happened that one time. <laughs> That's good. I'm glad that only happened the one time. <laughs> I moved all these pavers to protect the beds. Now, if cars if cars drive on them, they get um, it takes out their undercarriage. <laughs> nice Miranda what was the last purely recreational activity you guys did together yeah (laughs) oh um hmm. probably the women's march and and I'll ask each of you this question but but Mima if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing what would it be uh would be to start small I mean to do exactly what I'm doing now would be to start small Keep my day job, make a plan. I mean, those are more than one thing. Make a plan, I guess. And Miranda, how about you? Oh, I would tell my, I would tell myself, dreams come true. You're going to have your farm. You're going to buy your farm by the time you're 30 even. So stick with it, kiddo. You can do it. I love it. Mima Davis and Miranda Dushak, thank you so much for being on the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. We really enjoyed it. Yeah, we listened to your show and just really, really love it. Thanks for all you're doing out there, Chris. You're, it's so important what you're doing for small farmers. So thank you. And thank you for having us. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 105 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Urban Buds. That's U-R-B-A-N-B-U-D-S. Transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Growing for Market, where you can get 20% off your subscription with the code PODCAST at checkout. You can get the show notes for your Farmer to Farmer podcast in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. 
Also, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review if you enjoy the show, talk to us in the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource that you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world. You can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. Farmer to Farmer.